It's episode 34 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Fien. My old friend, Heaton Shaw, joins the program this week. He's the founder of numerous successful startups and mentor to many others. We talk about growth hacking, how it differs from more formal user research, and how to make products people love as quickly as we can. So let's get right to it. Do you uh, normally get up this early in the morning? Yeah, I get up. I get up by now. Wow. For sure. I got up a little bit earlier today, but talking to you, so why not? Well, I appreciate it. It's like six o'clock in the morning over there. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, well, let's uh, start with maybe a little history. I was trying to think like when I first met you. Uh, and I think it had to, right around the time that I was doing measure map and maybe you were just getting started with kiss metrics or maybe the timing is not quite right. What do you remember? What I remember, uh, when you, uh, when we first met was I think right about then what I, what I remember, this is my memory of it. Um, I actually had to describe you to my business partner the other day. Um, I literally last night cause I was like, I'm talking to Jeff. I'm waking up early for Jeff. This is who Jeff is. What I remember is. I never came to like the first early measure map parties where you guys la- actually launched measure map. Right. For right. some reason, I remember like a candle. I have no idea why. A candle. Maybe it was some picture or something that you guys had um, back then. <gasps> oh, I don't know. Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. in my head. Yeah. Um, and I, I saw it online. And I actually, this was probably 2006, I want to say, if not seven. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think I was up in the Bay Area yet because uh. I moved to the Bay Area in 2007. And then I think we first met right around the time when you were going from uh, uh, Measure Map over to Google. So it was probably pre-Google, uh, roughly. Yeah. Maybe at some some party, maybe through Lane Becker uh, and Thor. Or maybe one of those very early TechCrunch meetups. Remember those? Yep. Yeah. Yep. That, was, that was a whole different time, it seems like. So long ago. <laughs> oh, man. So correct. Yeah. But I just one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is is that we have always had very similar goals with how to make products, if not differing methods from time to time. And I thought that would be really interesting for us to talk through a little bit, Uh, because I know you're doing a lot of product development right now. uh, And I'd love to hear about how you're thinking about it. But when I say sort of product development methods, I mean, mostly around research. And I thought that might be a good sort of foundation for us to, uh, to, to talk about how we make decisions in product development today. How's that sound? Sounds great. Well, so what are you working on right now? That would be good to start with. Yeah. So I've got three old, old meaning they're more than a year or two old uh, existing products. I have one that's uh, called Crazy Egg and it is, what is it now? Uh, 12 years old. And uh, <laughs> It was one of the first tools to let you kind of see where people click on a website with a heat map. And even to this day, it's barely just one feature. So <laughs> we, we have added more features. And right now we are doing a lot of research as well as uh, testing around adopt, uh, getting our, our kind of customers to adopt those features. Um, so those are three businesses. Um, or, or sorry, that was one of three. There's two others. and But fast forwarding a little bit, in the last, I would say, about 18 months, I've started uh, another sort of, t- I guess, team, if you want to call it, because those three are basically separate teams. Mm-hmm. This is a new team, and we're working on, right now, five different products at the same time. And it isn't like an incubator or a lab. We're actually, uh, you know, our plans are to make all those five products work, work meaning reach some meaningful uh, scale. Five different products with one team? That's uh, that would be impossible for me. How do you make that work? I, I need 
more focused than that or yeah and and the alternative is a little impossible for me is what i've noticed about myself (laughs) so um i i think for me the pace of learning the process that works right now the methods the tactics the strategies uh seems to just work better when i have a team that wants to work on multiple things and can sort of manage resources and and part of the problem becomes well we have limited resources how do we get all of these things done um for all the businesses right right, and you know the thing i like to say about that today when people ask because it is definitely different than pretty much most things you hear about is that most large companies have more than one product um so why not start that way (laughs) uh yeah it's true when i was when i was at adobe uh, I think we had, uh, I don't know, 40, 50 different products that we had to kind of account for as we did all of our work. So, Yeah, that might be a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> different scope, different scale, 30-year-old company, 15,000 people, totally. you know, that, that sort of thing. Uh, so making decisions, that's, um, that's what I wanted to talk about. I, have been, I was having a conversation with uh, Daniel Burka, who is a design partner at Google Ventures. You know Daniel? Uh, I'm familiar with him. I've never met him. I've known him for a while. I really always enjoy our conversations. Uh, One of the things that he has been kind of going around talking about is this idea that design can be thought of as the scientific method for business. That is, it is a process that you can use to uncover the right things to build, the right way to build them, and for validation of whether you built them or not. Have a hypothesis, create an experiment, run the test, and then kind of continue to iterate. I've been really fascinated with that. I would probably modify it to say user experience rather than design, just to be a little clearer in which methodologies we're talking about. But I was wondering what you thought of that, because it seems like that is the kind of process that I have witnessed you perform when you are kind of developing your businesses or things like that. I want to start by saying that it feels like every discipline uh, wants to co-opt business, for lack of a better (laughs) word, and business growth. And so on one hand, I fully agree, especially when you broaden it and say user experience, because to me, that encompasses a a lot of different things besides just what many people would refer to as design, Mm -hmm. such as copy uh, and and high fidelity, low fidelity and all these other things that kind of, um, you know, you think about when you think about user experience, also different things like different devices that people are coming from. I think that that helps me for sure. latch onto it more i'd say that um we also have this idea of growth teams and growth hacking and 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 they would argue the people that really you know prescribe to that that hey um we're responsible for a business's growth because i think this partially goes to what what part of a company is responsible (laughs) you know and 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 you know what they all are they all are right and so uh, yeah, I, I I guess I agree. Just like I agree that growth is important in a business, and you should be thinking of things that way. I think the the fundamental thing that we're hitting on these days is that things are a lot more predictable than ever, and things meaning business can be more predictable than it ever was. One of the one of the big reasons, actually, for me personally, is watching the work of folks like you, and I want to say folks like you up up until maybe you started Typekit let's say. And what I mean by that is you folks come from a place where you can get answers to what is actually the right experience 
for whatever problem you're looking to solve. Mm -hmm. And write, I'll I'll put in quotes, because, you know, there's Mm -hmm. many different facets of write, especially when you start layering on creativity uh, and things like that. But essentially, to me, most business problems or most business growth or business things boil down to find problem, solve problem. And I think what Daniel Burke is kind of referring to there is is, is a fundamental uh, thing around design and user experience where it is about finding finding the problem. And I think when, when you talk about research and what I'm doing, I focus a lot more on finding the problem first, uh, actually probably all the time, uh, than just trying to solve the problem. And I think historically people have been so focused on solving the problem that they spent much less time finding the right problems and 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 uh, focusing on uh, kind of the business growth or the business that way. Oh, I totally agree with that. So one of the things, so back in the Adaptive Path days, one of the things that we observed about sort of how Silicon Valley functioned was that it was often from a pure technology point of view. That is, essentially scientists, engineers, researchers in a lab inventing some new function for the machine. And when they have developed that function saying like, oh my gosh, this is, this has got to be good. Let's give it to those, uh, product marketing people to see if they can go find a use for it in the world so that we can make money from the thing that we invented. And we felt that that was fundamentally backwards, that instead you should be in the world observing where people are struggling and to see if you can use technologies that either exist or not to help them solve those problems. And that would be a much less riskier way of developing technology. What do you think of that? I love that. I think uh, at that time, that was such a uh, relevant and uh, accurate assessment of where, where things are at. And even, even to this day, I think there's, there's aspects of the Bay Area, Silicon Valley that are still like that. I mean, when you think about uh, artificial intelligence yeah. and machine learning and these, these um, technologies seen as solutions, not necessarily... Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, sort of solving a problem, which are, I think, very, very different things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I read a quote somewhere recently that, that said, um, all business is about making bets on human behavior. I think, that's, I think that's, that's an interesting framing as well. And I would take it back to this sort of out there in the world observing problems as a way of like making sure your bet is less risky. That's, that's another way of, uh, of thinking about it. Yeah, I really like that too. I think the, the aspect that I find most fascinating for myself is when we can marry the idea that we're observers and we're observing problems. We, and then we do kind of, I would say, the work, the real work where you come up with the right solutions and then you put them out there in the world and watch what happens. So the behavior doesn't start, or I'm sorry, it doesn't end with, oh, I found a problem, now I'm going to go solve it. Uh, it. It actually ends with like, I, I have proposed my solution put it out there in the world in some capacity and I'm able to see what actually happens. So it's basically one of those things where it's like, is what, uh, is what we thought was going to happen actually, does that actually happen once we put it out there in the world? Because even there, there's lots of disconnect. Mm. Um, and you have to oftentimes go back to the drawing board or go back and say, okay, this is what we got right. This is what we got wrong. Where do we need to dig in? Uh, or how can we solve the problem in a better way or a different way now that we have more learnings? Right. Um, so that's, I don't know, this stuff's pretty fundamental to me these days when I look at um, all the work that's going on between product growth, 
um, marketing, even sales and, and obviously design as well. And I'm like, you know, it, it, we're all just looking to solve, solve problems in the best way possible for our customers. Right. Right. Other right. people. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, that's interesting. Um, do you, do you think the difference between those disciplines is just some of the sort of process that they use? Um, assuming they all have the same goals. I don't know. I'm, t- I'm struggling with that a little bit to say like, oh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's growth or it's sales or it's marketing or it's user experience or whatever. Uh, because to me, the disciplines aren't that, or, or the divisions aren't that big of a deal. It's the, it's the, um, the, the, literally the methodologies that we use to get there. Yeah. I'm increasingly becoming a believer in the fact that there's not as much difference as all of us would like to believe between right. these sort of departments, disciplines, focuses. And the reason for that is like, if you are looking to learn how to do sales and do it really well, you have some strong form of a feedback loop. If you're looking to you know, create a user experience, you can't do that without a strong feedback loop. Um, if you're looking to truly like scale marketing, can't do that without a strong feedback <laughs> loop. Um, if you're you know, um, in this kind of, I guess, co-opted or new discipline called growth, uh, that is really somewhere between products and marketing, in my opinion. Uh, you you can't really Im- get growth unless you actually have a feedback loop. Now, the tools we use to measure that feedback loop uh, and understand it are probably different across the departments for the most part. Um, even on a, a product team, it's, it's, it's funny how many product teams I go to uh, these days and I talk to them and you know, most of it all has to do with how fast is your feedback loop and where in your process are you getting stuck with it? And if you can assess that for a team or look at a team and assess that for yourself, if you're on a team, you can figure out pretty fast like where where your bottlenecks are from actually creating the best product possible. I think that's really the goal. Even, even sales as a product, they're trying to create the best possible. They're trying to figure out how do we help people understand what we can provide them and get them to pay money for it, you know. But we're our, the tools they use are, are phone calls and and uh, you know proposals and uh, you know the like. While in um, on product teams, we're using straight up designs, you know, like actual things that are you know designed up. People can interact with them, user experience, I guess you can call it. And that's how that's that's the core of our feedback loop. This week's episode of Presentable is brought to you by Pingdom. Start monitoring your websites and servers today at pingdom.com slash RelayFM. You'll get a 14-day free trial, and when you enter offer code PRESENTABLE at checkout, you'll get 30% off your first invoice. Pingdom is focused on making the web faster and more reliable for everyone who has a site, and they do this by offering powerful and easy-to-use tools and services. For example, if you're a Pingdom user, monitoring the availability and performance of your server, database, or website will be a breeze. Pingdom takes care of this by using more than 70 global test servers that emulate visits to your website, checking availability as often as every minute. These days, websites are becoming more and more sophisticated and often include several dependencies, such as contact forms, e-commerce checkouts, logins, search functionality, and loads more. So Pingdom makes it possible to monitor the availability of all of these key interactions that people will have with your site. And it's not just about the whole site anymore. 
anymore. Look, let's be real. Stuff breaks on the internet all the time. Every month, Pingdom detects like 13 million outages. That's more than 400,000 outages every day. So regardless of whether you have a small website or managing complete infrastructure, it's super important to monitor the availability and performance. All Pingdom needs is the URL you wish to monitor, and they'll take care of the rest. When Pingdom detects an outage, you'll be immediately alerted so that you can fix the error before the downtime affects you. You don't want to get caught out when someone wants to access your website, so you need Pingdom. Check it out today, and you'll be the first to know when your site is down. So go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM for a 14-day free trial and use code PRESENTABLE at checkout to get a massive 30% off your first invoice. Our thanks to Pingdom for their support of this show and all of RelayFM. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about growth teams. So we're talking to an audience uh, of this podcast, primarily designers or people um, building products and stuff like that. Uh, may not have the same experience as many of the kind of the new generation of startups that are really growth focused and things like that with, a, with people specifically tasked with that kind of stuff. Can you give us maybe just a little bit of history of where that notion of growth hackers and, and all of that came from? Absolutely. Growth hacking, uh, as kind of the term was coined, uh, or growth hacker actually was how it was coined originally, mm -hmm. uh, was created by a gentleman named Sean Ellis. He saw a pattern where startups didn't need a VP of marketing or a CMO. They needed what he called, uh, what he calls a growth hacker. And that is this person who is much more um, involved with the rest of the company, not just in marketing, not just driving traffic, but also responsible for getting conversions, uh, getting people to adopt the product uh, and kind of go deeper in the funnel. So that would be my sort of explanation of what growth hacker uh, and that term and kind of where it came from is. Mm -hmm. And it, it was just to explain this evolving role that isn't marketing in a startup. And this was, uh, I forgot the year, but probably around 2006, 2007, mm -hmm. 2008, somewhere yep. around there. And now here's what's interesting. The difference between a growth hacker and a growth team is actually quite a bit different. Uh, or And now these terms are all just muddied up. But a growth team, I believe Facebook, if I'm not mistaken, was one of the first, if not the first company to have a growth team. And that is actually different than a growth hacker. So a growth team was is basically responsible for the in and out of people between, you know, people coming into the product and, and leaving the product and making sure that the, the sort of opportunity for users or user growth or, you know, the growth in the people that are actively using a product is going up. You know, that's uh, probably a very butchered way to say it, but that's what a growth team is, was responsible for or is responsible for. And in, in at least Silicon Valley and probably now in the world, there is a ton of talk about this just because it sounds really great and nice to, to think that some team inside of a company can be responsible for growth. My opinion today when, when I, now that I've looked at all these things and it's been some years since the stuff has become more and more popular, is that the whole company is really a growth team. That would be my ideal scenario. Uh, in fact, that's how I think about the companies uh, that uh, I, I kind of own and run. Uh, and what that means to me is that we're all thinking about what is the most important problem to solve right now in the business. And regardless of what part of the company you're in, you're focused in on that. And when you think about a growth team, you even think about things like uh, solving uh, user experience problems. You really want to focus on what's the most important problem. 
Because if you're solving a problem that's not the most important problem, it's likely your business is not going to grow. Interesting. So I have always had sort of a bias that I'm trying to get over around uh, the difference between growth and design or growth and user experience. In that growth was responsible for people coming in to the product and user experience was responsible for people staying, right? You could boil it down maybe to uh, the difference between conversion, that is people who aren't users becoming users, and churn, people who were users stopping to be users. And that uh, growth was all about funnels and a lot of math around uh, people coming in and getting them to, you know, quote unquote, activate and things like that. Uh, but that ultimately the growth was responsible for taking the existing product and explaining it in such a way and removing barriers from entry uh, such that people would not be disappointed when they got to the product, but that the product was a result of a bunch of people using user research and user experience methodologies to make the best possible thing. And I think what you're saying is like, no, it's all, it's all the same piece. Like conversion is, and, and churn are just two sides of the same coin. Does that sound right? Yeah. I, I, all the best growth teams are using those user experience tools or user experience strategies and tactics that you, you actually use for most of your career, yeah, right, yeah. all of your career, even up till now, I'm sure you're still using the same same things when you talk to companies uh, and help them out. And and in fact, I, I watched you do it just a couple of years ago. Uh, I did the growth thing, you did the design thing, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know, um, it, 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 to me, like there's no difference anymore. Maybe there was a difference again. I, I keep claiming that there's a difference because <laughs> people want their discipline to own something. And they want that their discipline to own that new thing. And in my mind, like the whole company is responsible for this. It doesn't matter what piece of it you're worrying about, whether it's the sales part or you know if you want to call it the growth part or the you know design user experience part. I think that when I think about a sales team, there's a user experience there that they're responsible for. When I think about a marketing team, there's a user experience yeah. there. And and when I think about a product team, yeah, absolutely. There's a user experience there. And when I think about a growth team, the best growth teams are learning what problems, what bottlenecks exist across the whole funnel, not just uh, at the top of the funnel around conversion, but also around churn. Because the in and out uh, of the people tends to be the responsibility, honestly, of everybody. But that's what we've defined uh, out here, at least as a growth team. Yeah, that's interesting that you use the term product team, because that's a term that I've been using quite a lot, making no distinction between, say, design and engineering. It's just a, a group of people that have a variety of different skills working on the product, building the product. Um, and I like that quite a bit as a, as a way of saying that, you know, there's a lot of synthesis that's happening here around these methodologies. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So I think one of the reasons that I have some of these biases around growth hacking, growth, growth teams, is that so many of the methodologies that they were using were so quantitative. And I have a ton of respect and, frankly, have, have found a lot of value in uh, quantitative uh, measurements. I mean, I've worked on analytics, after all. But, um, <laughs> but when it comes to insights and inspiration for what to build and how to solve problems, I always fall back on qualitative research methods to do that, to, to see people struggling with a product and to try to pick apart in a, in, you know, in a real sort of person-to-person way, why they're struggling and what we can do to, to solve those problems. And, and I'm wondering, just from your perspective, if you've, if you've seen you know, the growth community embrace more of these qualitative methods. Yeah. Um, the short answer is yes. 
Absolutely. They've had to. But once the kind of easier kind of problems or the low-hanging fruit was taken care of. And part of the reason I think that this sort of uh, mindset exists on your end is because, you know, like there, there was a time when Facebook apps were a big deal. And this was the same time when growth hacking and growth teams were kind of growing up or starting to grow up or starting to emerge as a, as a discipline concept, you know, set of tactics, strategies. Mm-hmm. And back then you could, you know, change, a, a, I guess, the copy on a button or the color of a button and actually see a lot of gains because you're dealing with hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people going through your experience. Mm -hmm. And at that time, the quantitative side was so much more valuable to those folks that were working on those problems around growing a Facebook application. So when there's a lot of volume, there tends to be a much lower sort of likelihood that the team is spending enough time with qualitative sort of research. Um, or qualitative data. Uh, I think now, regardless of volume, the market uh, most most markets are crowded. So the, there's there's a new product in every market coming out probably every day, um, and and it's easier than ever thanks uh, Amazon Web Services to build something and get it up and running. And I think that definitely has changed the perception of whether it's growth growth folks or even uh, user experience folks. Uh, because I, I could say the same thing about my sort of historical perspective on user experience folks, where they are not spending enough time in quantitative areas and actually understanding um, what the impact of their designs are from a quantitative perspective absolutely. after they actually ship them. Absolutely, absolutely. But, you know, you, you do raise that, that shift of the cost has just gone away, right? And I think that that's had so much impact over these last 10 years. I mean... Again, back in the adaptive path days, so much of our work was focused on low resolution, uh, low fidelity prototyping, or not prototyping rather, but um, wireframes. And that was because uh, we would want to try to get to some proposal of a solution as quickly as possible. But the tools that we have in place now mean that you can actually put something out in the world much faster uh, and with almost no cost than we were ever ever able to do 10 years ago. And one of the questions I've always had about that is the, the kind of impact that that might have to brand perception, where it is so easy to put things out into the market so quickly that, um, that if you find that you are failing, which is what you want to find out, uh, obviously with an experiment, um, could that kind of tarnish what you're trying to do overall? Yeah, I love that uh, question because to me, just because you can doesn't mean you should is what comes to mind. Exactly. Yeah. So I totally agree that people are doing this because it's just so easy to build, design, you know, implement and launch and release something. What we do, at least the way we think about it for all of our products is <clears throat> if we can get it right without having a ton of people exposed to it, that's better. So we have, you know, we, we do a lot of user research. We do a lot of um, uh, user testing. And it's really amazing at how much of the kind of, you know, I, I, w- I want to call it OG kind of adaptive path style, <laughs> kind of even wireframing to some extent we're still using today, except we don't call them wireframes anymore. They're literally in sketch and I can edit them. I'm not any of these things. I'm not a designer. I'm not a programmer. I'm barely a marketer. <laughs> um, and, and, and so 
uh, I could mess around with Sketch, change the copy, export the screens out, add them to Envision, which is super easy, or UXPIN or any of those tools. I don't even need those tools necessarily. Make something clickable, and there we have it. Like there's 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 a clickable prototype ready to go that's not even a wireframe, and then I can go launch it on usertesting.com, and then all of a sudden, in within literally an hour, yeah. I have five people that have went through it, and if I've asked my questions the right way, because it does take about 20, 30 minutes to set up the test. Yeah. It takes longer to set up the test and start to get results. I know, it's uh, amazing. From those tests, it's amazing, you're right. And so we go through that process. I'm not a designer or anything, and I can go do it myself as long as some designer set up the sketch file for me and, ha- and we have some existing designs that I can mess with. I can even move stuff around. It's great. I'm not going to add a crazy shadow because that's not my thing, but <laughs> I can move stuff around and I can get this thing out. And, you know, these days, you know, we're, we're, we're now measuring a lot of our product development based on how many actual user tests did we get out that week. Oh, as a metric for velocity, sort of? Yeah, yeah. And it's amazing because the more of those we get out, obviously, properly, the more we learn, faster we learn. We don't have to build it. So to me, it's like if I can get out five different versions of a way to solve a problem that we found, and if we discovered it was the most critical problem, just based on those five people that go through each of those five versions, we will have a ton of gold as to kind of what to do next. Mm. We will be able to move around, change up kind of the, the next version we do or the next two versions we do and then put those out. This can happen literally every day. Do you think there's a risk of it being a little too easy in that? Like one of the, the phrases you said in that uh, just now was if you if we ask the questions the right way, right? And I know you're we're sort of talking about here like usertesting.com as unmoderated, right? We write a set of questions. Uh, they are like placed on a user screen and they read those and and there's no ability to follow up to seek some of the nuance that you get out of live testing and things like that. I think uh, that that there would be a lot of response from the use the kind of the user research community, the people who have sort of put their careers into this as saying like, I don't know that the re- the results you're getting are even close to being valid. Yeah, lovely. Um, so to me, <laughs> to, to me, there's there's a few things there. Uh, I think speed to the right answer trumps everything for me. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I would, I, if I can get, you know, the right answer through doing this repeatedly over a week or two period, that's tends to be a lot faster than most kind of people who are, who have been entrenched in the discipline for so long. And that's because it just wasn't possible to be so fast. So I'm going to start out that, I guess, for lack of a better word, aggressively about, you know, people that would say that. Um, the second piece of this is just like anything else that even if you had a user researcher that's doing in-person or remote user testing or usability research, and they are asking the wrong questions, they are biasing the person that they're the people that they're talking to, you still get the same kind of sort of false positives or bad results. Um, so to me, what we do is we are continuously not just looking at the user testing and hearing the folks, by the way, you can follow up now. So I should say that there is an ability to follow up with the people that you talk to, although we don't very often, uh-huh. but you can to get the nuances. That being said, so what, what we do is we don't just ask the questions, you know, run the test and then get the results. We actually ask the questions, run the test. We get the results. We do evaluate them, but we add this layer of like, well, did we ask the right question? 
did they slip up anywhere because of us, uh-huh. not because of them or the, the user experience? And us would be the questions we ask, right? And I specifically point out user testing because they've spent years adding a lot of functionality that has made my life easier. They have a five-second test built in. So you can show someone a screen for five seconds, like the homepage or whatever, and they can tell you what they remember about it. Mm. That already has been super helpful once they added that. Then they have this ability to do a visual response as well as a task-based response and let you de- let the uh, person decide whether they were successful or not with the task. So be- based on all those tools that they give you, we're, we're not just assessing, oh, you know, this experience and the person going through it and what their challenges are, what confuses them. We're also assessing our ability to ask the right questions for that experience to get what we want out of it. Yep. Yep. And this is the process that you've been using lately, sort of, uh, in a a super, like almost hyper iterative style. Absolutely. About the last six months. And it's, it's been, uh, very enlightening. And also like uh, another thing I should note is our team that's working on all those products is like a handful of people, not more than that. And that's on purpose. What are the disciplines? Like what are, who are the people? Yeah, it's uh, mostly uh, my co-founder and I who spend uh, would be the equivalent of product people. There's mm-hmm. one designer who likes working on more than one thing, uh, and he's you know the person in Sketch a lot. Then there's one front-end person who's CSS, HTML, uh, all that good stuff. Uh, and then there's there's people that do uh, one person that does backend and one person that does sort of more of like this new discipline. Uh, <laughs> that's the middle layer called JavaScript. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh man. Uh, anyways, yeah, is it front end? Topic. Is it back end? Right. <laughs> exactly. Is it front end? Is it back end? Why do we need someone who does CSS, HTML, and someone else who does React or or, or whatever view or whatever we're using? I mean, it's it's ridiculous. Different story. So yeah, I mean, uh, we we keep our teams really small, and we make sure that um, the things that we are releasing have as much. We go as far as we can on the validation before we actually even get get them, you know, finalized from a design standpoint. Have you done any in-person testing or anything like that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Done uh, in-person as well as done uh, remote uh, testing as well and still find that user testing um, has been the most efficient and the fastest. And, you know, in the same amount of time you can kind of schedule and run some of these in-person tests or even the remote tests, you get a lot more results out of the user testing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I would add to all of that. I think I think you probably agree. The more you invest in the the methodologies, the getting better at asking and observing, I think the better the results become uh, in general. And I've seen like just your what what you've described as your experience is just doing it through continuous repeti- repetition. I think it's great. But um, I've had plenty of people on this show who kind of have, like I said, invested their careers in it. And go look at the work of Jared Spool or the, you know, like Erica Hall's book. I don't know if you've read that, but um, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I'll put links to the, all of that stuff in the show notes. But that, to me, I, th- I, I think can can kind of meet in the middle. You know what I mean? Like these these really close to the metal, very fast and lightweight research methods can sit on top of the bulk of all of this research that's gone on for decades. Yeah, I, I, no debate there. The only thing I would add is that in a lot of the scenarios that I've seen, and you might have a different uh, kind of viewpoint, whether it's you know um, Jared Spool or some of the other folks that have been in, in, in it that long, their perspective comes from the discipline a lot, like, like very like discipline-oriented. My perspective, I want to build product that people love, period. 
And I'm responsible for all of it, every part of it, whether it's sales, whether it's marketing, whether it's the user experience, the engineering, the product, right? All of it. And so, and I know you have been too. And for me, that puts a whole different perspective on how fast we need to move and how important it is to get the right answer as fast as we can. And it's not to say that we're sloppy or anything like that. It's not to say that we don't spend time on things. It's just that like every time I've talked to some of these folks and they tell me their timelines, they don't match up with what my requirements are. Right. That, that's, it's the simple truth. And, and, and it's not to say that I'm, I actually highly respect the discipline. I've learned a ton from that discipline as to how to ask the right questions, how to frame things, and you know, what kind of methodologies work really well. Uh, even Jared Spool, to pick on him, he had a big rant on Twitter about net promoter score. Mm-hmm. And the factor that he misses is this idea of speed. If I can get an 80% correct answer in, you know, 20% of the time, wow, like I could do so much more, right? And so, yeah, a lot of those people might look down upon this and say, oh, it's not perfect or it's not, you know, uh, this or that. But for me, I'm building product and, and making sure that, you know, customers are happy. And the responsibility is a lot different than just doing actual great, perfect research. In my ideal world, I'd spend all my time doing research. I love it, to be honest. Um, but uh, I think the creativity around solving the problem and then learning whether that problem was correct, that's also why I favor the quantitative approaches as well. And I learned a lot about those from more of the growth folks and the marketing folks where you know you, you put it out there and then you measure it and you see what's happening and you run A-B tests. And so I think we're in a world where like all this stuff is turning into one big discipline. I don't know what it's called. I, I like to call it product. I'm sure you would too, Jeff, but that's kind of where I'm at. Uh, I do. I do call it product, uh, but I'm unsatisfied with that term because it kind of, because <laughs> la- it lacks a verb, you know, you know what I mean? It's, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, I tend to talk about hiring product designers and in that, like I'm differentiating between like designers who are, you know, have worked in media or graphic or, you know, things like that. I want, mm. and, and to me, it's, it's, uh, designers who have shipped products on, you know, like get them out through the door and out into the world and have received feedback and have done iteration and all that kind of stuff. It's a, kind of a different, different thing. Uh, I don't know what the, the, what you were describing just there kind of is one way I think of like the first bit of my career when I was doing research and, um, and projects for adaptive path. And the second bit, which has been all around me as an entrepreneur and then later, uh, as an investor and all of it has to do with time. Like you were saying, the speed at which we can do things. Because earlier in my career, I was doing big projects for big Fortune 500 companies that had remarkable timelines and remarkable budgets. And in the second half, all I needed to do was get the best possible results I could before we ran out of money. (laughs) And that to me was, that is the startup story. That is, we have a new product, a new idea, and we have literally the amount of money that I can see in the bank account is going down every day. And I need to turn that around as quickly as I can uh, so that this product can continue to exist. And, and very few large corporations have that kind of urgency around it. And I think that's why the methodologies have been kind of mutated and, and, and coaxed into a way that we can, we can uh, try to do that in much more aggressive timelines and things like that. I would love to have you and uh, Jared just do a show together. <laughs> just, I think that would be really interesting. I'll do the introductions and step away and let you go at it. Um, Heaton, this has been fantastic. Any kind of final thoughts before we, before we go? No, I just love talking to you, Jeff. 
thanks for the time. Uh, you know, um, you mentioned the work that we did on about.me. That was one of true yeah. portfolio companies. I kind of stepped in for a little while, and, we, and you did as well. And we worked with our, yeah. our great friend, Tony Conrad, and kind of conceived of a new strategy and a new design to fit on top of that new user experience. That was a wonderful collaboration. I'm so glad we got an opportunity to work together on that. Same. Let's see, hedonism.com is where people can find out more about you, subscribe to your newsletter, stuff like that, um, follow you on Twitter and all that, or what? where else? Uh, it's, at, it's at Product Habits. I think product that's Habits. probably the one. All right, I'm a, I'll put links to both of those uh, in the show notes so that people can find out more about you and follow you on Twitter and see what you're up to. Sounds like you're up to a lot. I hope you get to take a break from time to time. I don't think you do, though. I hang out with my kids. That's <laughs> <good>. <laughs> you know how it is. That's good. That's good. Heaton, thanks so much for being on the show. Talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.